Hello and welcome to the Classicist Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here as always with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, today I base our discussion on a recent piece that you wrote for National Review with the deceptively subdued title, Rethinking the Geography of Power. And without spoiling too much, I'll just introduce this by noting that you believe that where political institutions are located really matters. And I'll have you start us off by explaining to us what that should mean about the future of the United Nations. Well, I think that there's such a wide distrust with um, both national and supranational organizations that one way to restore it would be to make rhetoric match actions. So I, I pick, picked on the United Nations. I said because they're, they sort of have an anti-Western, anti-American, anti-Semitic drumbeat, and they champion the other and the underprivileged, and yet they're creatures of this Manhattan landscape where they jump on TV or they go to five-star hotels and restaurants and they live in a bubble, it would be much better to put it in Port-au-Prince, the United Nations. We could stay in it, but it would be in Haiti or it could be in Uganda or it could be in Nigeria or it can be in Bolivia. And that way, the immediate landscape around and the, the way that people live there would be would remind them every day of the urgency to follow through on their message rather than to pose in this anti-Western fashion. And I try to extend that to other supernatural uh, national bodies such as NATO. I mean, NATO's Brussels headquarters is sort of in the interior of this huge alliance, but the challenges to the alliance are on the periphery, which they're hundreds and even thousands of miles again. So maybe you can put the NATO's headquarters in Malta and give sort of a a sense that they're on the front lines, that there really is conflict with the Islamic world, if that's the problem. Or you could put it uh, maybe in Eastern Europe, closer to Putin. But the idea that it's going to be in this tony, affluent um, Brussels that has little flavor of, of the contours of tension in the world it's kind of it just leads to an out-of-touch elite and the same thing was true of the european union I, if you put these cities that with the international court, uh, criminal court or the parliament or the executive body in places like strasbourg or brussels or the hague it'd be much better to have them in athens or in naples um, and then they would get a, a view of how people who are not so affluent and Given the identity politics of the time that we're told that a sort of out-of-touch, white male, affluent establishment set all these institutions, institutions up and don't reflect the modern 21st century world, that would be true of the EU, too. I mean, there, you could say, well, you guys started out with Germany and France and Belgium and this Northern European clique, but then you expanded and you got people in, you know, Romania and people in Greece and people in Spain, and yet you don't reflect that diversity. So I think that would be geographical. And I, the capstone I thought of the argument was in the United States, we talk about the swamp, but we're really talking about, I don't know, 200 square miles in Maryland and Virginia, D.C., of people who are dependent on government employment, government contracts, government lobbying, government service, got politics, and 
They're very incestuous. So you say drain the swamp, it's sort of like putting your finger in a doughboy or something. And the better way would to take those cabinet, large cabinet uh, divisions or maybe organizations, CIA, FBI. But I, I, meant, I concentrated on the cabinets and put them out in the hinterland where the problems actually are. So agriculture, maybe in Fresno or energy in Houston or commerce or labor in Youngstown, Ohio, or maybe Erie, Pennsylvania, something like that. Now, in in the piece that you wrote to this effect, you you focused exclusively on on the public sector, on government institutions. But I'm curious as to what degree you think you could apply the same line of critique to the media because you had this remarkable exercise after the 2016 election where the media was sort of self-flagellating for a while over the fact that they had – unconsciously lost sight of maybe 43 states out of the union, everything between the Acela Corridor on the East Coast and the 101 Freeway on the West Coast. Is there a similar need for decentralization on the press side? I think it is. I think that would mean that Jim Acosta or somebody like him or Jake Tapper, if they were were broadcasting from, I don't know, Provo, Utah or somewhere in Arizona or Texas – or even places like Michigan or Ohio, then they would be living and eating and uh, reporting among people who might walk by and say, you know what, that's stupid, or they wouldn't be the big heartthrob, or they wouldn't be making that kind of money, or they wouldn't have their kids in prep schools, or they wouldn't be angling to go to, you know, Sidwell Friends in Washington or get Junior into Princeton. So it would be very good. I, I think and I, I have a self-serving argument because although I'm speaking to you today from the Stanford campus in an apartment, I try to live where I was born in Fresno, outside of Fresno. And it's been very helpful in my life because when I get back into Fresno County and I go to this little town called Salmon, I'm out beyond Salmon. Nobody cares what I do. If I were to say I'm a senior fellow in Hoover, they might as well say you're from the moon. They ask me very different questions. Uh, Victor, can you help me weld? Victor, my car broke down. Can I borrow your truck? Victor, uh, a guy dumped a pit bull the other day at my house. And should I shoot the pit bull or take the risk? And these are questions that actually enrich the way you look at the world. And and uh, when I write things, I, and I'm, I can be very critical of people. I always say to myself, not just how would the person on the other end feel, but what would that person want to do to you? And they think they're insulated. And so they're very free with invective and vituperation. But where I grew up, I have to be very careful because if I say something critical and that's unfair of illegal aliens, and everybody knows me in this little town that's 90% Hispanic, and I go into Walmart and this has happened, somebody will come up and confront you. And if the answer is not what he wants, he wants to settle it by other means. And that get, that creates an honesty, I think, and a realism. So I, I think it's good to get our elite out into the underbelly of America. Well, to that point, you use international and federal examples in the piece, but I'm struck that in a lot of states you could say something similar about the need for perspective. <clears throat> Where you live in the Central Valley in California, if that was its own state, it would be in the top – 15 or 20 in the, in the nation by population. But there in California, you're in a state where 
the Bay Area and to a somewhat lesser degree, the Los Angeles area really holds the whip hand in, in state politics. I, explain what effect that has on life there in California. Well, I think we – and we've talked about this before, but on almost every issue that's led to California's demise, it's been by a, a cadre in that La Jolla to Berkeley corridor within 50 miles of the ocean. So what I mean by that is we have the highest kilowatt prices, I think, except for Hawaii, but that's always 70 degrees. They they, they never live in 105. They don't take their family to Walmart because they can't afford to turn on the air conditioning when it's 105. And we're 46 in test scores, but, you know, there's a private academies all on, up and down the coast. There's not in the interior or in the far north. Or they cut water off or they want to have this $50,000 a salmon replanting program and they let out 50 million acre feet of water. But that's only because our, their grandfathers or great-grandfathers created the Hetch Hetchy Water Project and the California Water Project. If anybody cut them off, they would learn very quickly that they are no more viable than people in Fresno. I mean, in fact, Fresno has an aquifer, even though it's much hotter than Palo Palo Alto has no aquifer to speak of. I think 16% of the Bay Area's water is pumped. So they're an artificial microcosm. And they they think somehow they they think they're natural and they're living according to green principles. They're the most anti-green civilization in the history of the planet this Bay Area artificial affluent group. All their food has to be brought in. All their water has to be brought in. All their power has to be brought in. And they pay for it by this tech boom. But in, according to their own terms, they're, they're never subject to the ramifications of their own ideology. Whether we're talking about Washington or New York or Brussels, Victor, I, I get the sense and, – and quibble with me if any of this seems unfair, but I get the sense that – that you share the view, which has become more widespread recently, that cosmopolitanism can sort of be its own species of provincialism, but by which I mean that the guy whose world is cabin to Manhattan or D.C. may have just as many blind spots as the guy who's cabin to Des Moines. So yeah. let, let's just assume for a moment that no one ever implements the kind of proposals that we've been talking about, that all these institutions just sort of stay where they are. In that second or third best world, if some well-meaning, would-be politician came to you and said, Victor, you know what? You have a serious point and I've taken it to heart. What should I be doing to get a better sense of the people I serve? What would you say to him? Well, I I think that they have to ask themselves – how do they separate themselves from what the average person, the proverbial average person? Is it how they dress? Is it their language? Is it their value system? And I would say to them, you really think putting your kid in a computer camp or SAT school or conniving and finagling a way to get into Harvard or Yale or Princeton when, you, when he's six years old and calling up your friend and doing all that's really going to make him a complete person? Rather than making sure he knows how to defend himself, he knows how to shoot a gun, he knows how to mow the lawn. Is it really good that he's inside studying to go to get to Harvard when he's 12 while he has somebody illegally from Mexico mowing his lawn? So I think what we need to do is return to the Greek idea that 
excellence is defined in physicality, in spirituality, and pragmatism, as well as abstract knowledge. And I wrote a book once called The Other Greeks, and I tried to argue that what made Greek civilization unique was this agrarian, freeholding, homestead property owner that didn't exist anywhere else, and that they were the backbone of stability and, and you know, realism that helped the elite in town uh, divorce from the economy and write and think. But they, in turn, that elite reflected the values around them. They weren't completely divorced. The Greeks didn't have an idea of something like Harvard or Stanford or a think tank where I work. They, they just didn't have that idea. You had to be part of the larger community. And they were being made fun of. If you read Aristophanes' plays, I mean, Socrates was just pilloried as an egghead. And, that, and he thought that was good. He gave it back. And so I think that our elite is not out there on the front lines giving and taking with the public. And boy, for all the unexpected consequences of the Trump uh, campaign and election, I think the biggest is just how bankrupt are people who are certified and degreed, whether they're the people who got the polls wrong in the election or they were the pundits who forecast that Trump would be a disaster his first year or they're the people who are trying to build high-speed rail in um, near where I live in Fresno or they're the people who can't and, and you know, the, the government people at NASA that have to turn to private enterprise to shoot a rocket off. So I think we're really asking ourselves, what is an elite? Where are they trained? What are they learning? What is a PhD? What is a JD? What does an MD mean? And I think it's going to be very good that you have to prove that excellence. You just can't be stamped. And it, it's, a, it's a reflection of a loss of confidence in the university system of certifying people as excellent or or special. Well, the last thing I'll ask you about is specific to the, the Trump aspect of this. During the campaign, uh, Donald Trump revived this phrase of New Deal providence, the, the forgotten man, talking about all the people who are routine, routinely ignored by politicians and, and the press. And when the results came in, it turned out that Trump really did appeal to those people. Now, Victor, this is a billionaire real estate tycoon cum reality TV star whose life has been almost entirely anchored in New York City. At first glance, nothing in his biography would suggest that he's the one to break down this barrier. How does Donald Trump do it? Well, he does it both superficially and in some sense sincerely. I wrote a book, uh, an article once um, called the, the Most Unlikely Populist and so his mannerisms, his accent, the way his tie hangs around his neck, um, his ability to jump into an argument and scream and yell, it's what you see at the bowling alley, it's what you see at the liquor store, it's what I see at the hardware store. It's just the way people are. And he doesn't have this artificial veneer of manners, which I think is good to have as long as it reflects a deep, a deep-mannered personality. And what Trump came along and said is, I'm not sober and judicious, but the people who are sober and judicious are not necessarily nice people either. At least I'm honest. And what, by that he meant that, I mean, Barack Obama seemed very articulate and sober and judicious, but he called the tea, the tea Party teabaggers. And Bill Clinton was a Yale graduate, but he had sexual contact with a 
subordinate in the Oval Office bathroom. And Hillary Clinton is certified as Wellesley and Yale, and yet, from what we can tell, she violated the law. She hired an opposition research. She did the uranium deal. She gave $1,000 in a cattle trade and ended up $4 trillion, $4 trillion to one odds that she beat to, to, to walk away with 100000 So what Trump was saying is, I'm what you are. I am what you get, and I'm crude, but I'm not going to be crude with mellifluous tones. And that appealed, that argument. And then the other thing was that there was some sincerity about it because I think this gets the never-Trumpers the angriest. So here we have all these sober and judicious people like Mitt Romney and John McCain and George W. Bush, and whom I liked a lot, and his father. And I never heard him once say, our miners, our farmers, our workers, our vets. They would never use the word our. I heard Romney say that he couldn't work with 47% of the country. That's pretty stupid if you're a politician, but it means that you just – you're out of touch. You just write them off. I heard McCain call people crazies that came out to vote for uh, that came out for for Trump. Now these aren't the people of the left that said you know deplorable, irredeemable clingers. These are conservative Republicans. So Trump came along and said, you know, I just don't believe that globalization is our shared future. That there are. I just don't believe you write off whole swaths of the interior. I've been to China and I've seen what they've done. And I've been to Japan and Korea and I've seen what they've done. And I've seen how Europe is doing it. They don't have any defense. And who says that they get to continually have a trajectory and we don't when we're subsidizing this through trade and military. It's kind of a half-hearted, I mean, I don't want to use the word half-ass, but there's problems with it. But basically it showed empathy and the message was, I'm not going to write you off in Youngstown, Ohio. I'm not going to write you off in Indianapolis. I'm not going to write you off in York, Pennsylvania, just because you didn't get in your truck and abandon your home and abandon your family and, you know, drive out to the North Dakota oil fields like somebody has written in National Review. So it was an empathetic argument with a very crusty exterior. And I think it appealed to a lot of people. So that's the big paradox, isn't it, that we can't figure out that this wheeler dealer, exaggerator, often immoral person, why was it that he advanced an argument as crude as it was delivered that actually was more empathetic to working people than the party that was supposedly the party of manners and and caring, the Republican Party? And, And I don't think anybody's answered that question. All right. Thanks, as always, to everybody for tuning in to the Glasses podcast. If you haven't already, remember to pick up Victor's new book. It's called The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. If you enjoy the Glasses podcast, please rate the show on iTunes, and we'll be back with another episode soon. For Victor Davis Hanson, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.